Thank you, Ben. <clears throat> could, we, could we put the, the men's retreat slide up there one more time just for those that didn't catch it at the front end? So if you haven't signed up, the men's retreat slide, we got that? Maybe? Okay, there we go. Um, yeah, those again, just the dates and details. It's in the app all, and all the ways that you can sign up. You can go on the website. But I would encourage you, uh, the last time we did it a couple years ago was really a, a great treat. And so thank you, Ben, for that. And I want to draw your attention, as Ben uh, shared, to the prayer cards. So uh, the, the prayer cards are in, they're in the back, but they're also on the app. So if you've got your app, you can even look at those now. And it's, it's right there. You'll see prayer cards under Connect, I believe. And, um, you know, one of, the, one of the prayer requests that we've had over this year is that we would grow as men in connecting with one another around the Word and prayer. And I think Jonathan Pruitt's done a great job leading us in, in doing just that throughout the year. But this will be a special occasion for us to really focus in on time around the Word. We're looking at and reflecting on Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. And so I'd encourage you to, <clears throat> to continue to pray for that. And for, for our ladies who will be here while the men are away, to pray for that time. There's also a prayer in there for our women that they would grow in their engaging their gifts and callings with a confident faith. And, and Charlie's done a great job, I think, this year leading the women towards that end and empowering women to lead and teach uh, and use their gifts. And so I just, I want to pray for the upper section. If you've got the prayer card open, I want to pray for the, the way it's sort of divvied up is stewarding redemption, stewarding relationships, stewarding our resources. And redemption includes increasing participation in our corporate prayer life together. Um, and that includes, you know, weekday mornings that Andy's here every day usually uh, to pray, as well as uh, times that men gathered to pray, times in our small groups to pray, and of course here on Sunday morning, increasingly bringing the gospel to bear in our relationships with our family and friends and our neighbors, uh, bringing intentionally the love and hope of Jesus into the lives of those around us, and then finally continuing to support the church planning and missionary work. Um, and so I want to pray specifically for those things, but invite you to, if you haven't, it's been a while since you've looked at the card, to make this part of your, maybe your family's routine, your routine to pray for these items. God has already answered a lot of these prayers, uh, but there's a lot more that we'll continue to be asking the Lord for. So would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for this upcoming men's retreat. We pray your spirit would be there, that you would meet men where they are, that, Lord, you would capture more of our hearts. And I pray, Lord, specifically for um, just our, our prayer life together. Thank you for prayer that does happen in our small groups, that happens here throughout the week. We thank you for many in our congregation who are prayer warriors. Lord, we pray that you would grow us as a people, that uh, at the men's retreat, spontaneous prayers would break out, that as the women gather, they stop and, and pray even when it's not on the agenda. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would become a people who are eager and it is our instinct to turn to you in our need, in our frustration, in our sadness, in our confusion. For you are always eager to hear us, as we'll learn this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray also for the opportunities that each one of us in this room has to share the gospel with 
family, with friends, with coworkers and neighbors. Lord, would we help us this week to be intentional? Would you give each one of us in this room who is a disciple of you an opportunity to share the gospel this week with somebody? Give us courage. People need hope and they need to know your love. Help us, Lord, share that. And finally, Lord, would you help us as we support City of Refuge, as we support a number of church plants that are part of our network. And Lord, would you raise up a church planner here in our midst as we desire to continue to plant churches uh, in, a, in a world where there are more churches closing than opening every year. Lord, help us to be faithful to reproduce gospel community in this city, in this state, and in your world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. If we haven't met, by the way, my name is James Walden. I'm one of the elders here at Riverside Community Church. It's my privilege to bring the word this morning from Isaiah. If you would, open in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 38 and 39. We're finishing up what's often referred to as the first half of Isaiah. <clears throat> That's right. We've made it halfway. <laughs> Isaiah 38 and 39. I'm going to begin by just reading chapter 38 here this morning first, and then later in the message we'll get to chapter 39. Uh, you, I encourage you to open up your Bible because we'll be, we'll be kind of looking at a few pages back and forth, but it will also be on the screen for your convenience. Isaiah 38, verse 1. In those days... Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David your father. I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten days, ten steps rather. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said, in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent, like a weaver have I, I have pulled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself in the morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me. 
He himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health, make me live. Or perhaps you have restored me to health and made me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you, those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? This is the word of the Lord. As we'll see this morning, though Hezekiah begins by appealing to his own faithfulness, he ends up praising God's faithfulness. Kids, do you remember last year you had a special visitor on Reformation Sunday? Martin Luther. Do you remember what his message was? He shared with you his favorite doctrine, the doctrine of salvation by faith alone, the doctrine that he had freshly rediscovered in God's Word and in the Christian tradition. And what that means is that we are saved by faith alone, but that faith is in Christ alone. It isn't our faith itself that saves us. Our faith is often small, but our Savior is big. Our faith is often very weak, but Jesus is strong. Our confidence, then, isn't in our faith. It's in Jesus. He is the one who loves to save the weak and the small. In fact, it's the only kind of people he saves. He saves adults like this, and he saves children like this. And so I want to share with you, Martin Luther couldn't be here. He's still in Germany. He couldn't get his flight. So I want to share with you his prayer. This came from Luther's own pen, and he asked me to read it for you guys, okay? You can even pray with me if you want. You can bow your head, or you can just listen. The great Martin Luther, a man of faith, a man that we admire in many ways, writes this, Look, Lord, an empty cup that needs to be filled. Lord, fill it. I am weak in the faith. Strengthen me. I am cold in love. Warm me and make me fervent that my love may go out to my neighbor. I don't have a strong and firm faith. At times I doubt and I'm unable to trust you completely. Oh, Lord, help me. Strengthen my faith and trust in you. I am poor. You are rich. And you came to be merciful to the poor. I am a sinner. You are upright. 
With me, there is plenty of sin. With you, there is a fullness of righteousness. Therefore, I'm going to stay with you. From whom I can receive, but to whom I cannot give. Amen. At this time, our children are dismissed for Children's Church and Crossroads is dismissed for their time together in the Word. As we spend our time together in the Word, as our kids are making their way, I invite you to greet your neighbors. I see Emily is back to us from Africa. All right, we'll return to our seats, and I am going to open us up in a word of prayer. Hey, hey, good to see you too, man. How you doing? It's good to see you. I'll try my best pastoral. Let us pray. Let's pray for illumination as we dive into the Scriptures together and for our children as they spend their time in the Word. Heavenly Father, we do thank You that You are so gentle and so kind with the weak and the small. And that's who I certainly am this morning before You. Father, would You open our minds and hearts to hear and receive what You would have to instruct us. Holy Spirit, would You speak to us? so that the voice of Jesus is the voice we hear, that we are instructed by our one and great teacher, and we find our salvation in Him. It's in His mighty name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Well, we'll begin here by looking at Hezekiah's uh, uh, dramatic experience, uh, <clears throat> his ordeal. He's given a rather... A negative word from the prophet. He's sick, he's miserable, he's in a bad place, and Isaiah shows up. Maybe a, a, a light of hope begins to spring in him, and then Isaiah says, you're going to die. <laughs> you're not going to, he, he emphasizes it, you're going to die, and you're not going to live. Those are the two. Okay. But his response here, though he is a great king, is so very human, isn't it? It says he turned to the wall. He hit the wall and he prayed. Please, oh Lord. And then it says he wept bitterly. He's a man in great grief. He's a man who is horrified at the prospects. Look how he describes what he's facing in verse 10, which is his prayer of thanksgiving, but it's in retrospect to where he was. 
in the middle of my days I must depart. At this point, Isaiah is 39 years old. He's in the prime of his life. In the middle of my days, I must go. And look how he describes death. I am at the gates of Sheol. That's how Jesus described it. I will build my church in the gates of Hades. Sheol will not prevail. Well, Hezekiah says, the gates of Sheol are prevailing against me. I am consigned to the gates of death for the rest of my years. And look what that means. I will not see the Lord the Lord in the land of the living. I won't look on man. For isn't this a fascinating description of death? It's to be separated from the presence of God and the presence of others. You know you're truly alive in the presence of others. I mean, when's the last time you've been around a dinner table with friends, eating good food and laughing? Maybe you're crying together. Maybe you're crying because you're laughing so hard. This is life. And that is just a finite taste of life with God himself around his table. And this is what he fears, the isolation. That's what's so sad about our present age of isolation. We're so lonely. We, it's as if we're consigning ourselves to Sheol in our isolation from God and each other. We cut ourselves off from what constitutes life. Deep, abiding relationship. A good old biblical word, fellowship. I know it's, it sounds like Christianese in our ears now, but that's a deep and beautiful word. Sharing life with God and each other. The only kind of life is a shared life. Isolated life is death. And this is what he's horrified by, being utterly alone in the grave, a shadow of his former self, a mere ghost. He's also exhausted. All right? he, 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 he finally, he, he says in, in, verse, in verse 13, I calmed myself. You know, when you're sick, you're miserable. It takes so long to finally settle in. I finally calm myself. It, doesn't t- it takes me all night But like a lion, God keeps breaking my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. He repeats it in 12 and 13 twice. From day to night, this incessant illness that won't leave him be. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. Some translations say, I twitter. Twitter is the the voice of the dead. You had it. It's right here. I'm just kidding. I, mean, I moan like a dove. Like he's, I can't even get words out. I'm so overwhelmed and crushed. Just this pathetic kind of noise comes out of him. And then, of course, my eyes are weary with looking upward. I am oppressed. I walk around slowly. King Ahab said the same thing after the harsh words received from Elijah. It says he put on sackcloth and fasted and went about dejectedly. Literally, he walked gingerly for the rest of his days. Well, this is what Hezekiah says. I walk slowly, overwhelmed by the bitterness in my soul. 
Hezekiah's first response in verse 3, his prayer is, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart. That might strike us as odd at first, but he's not wrong. On the screen, you'll see what Hezekiah did in his days and how the Scriptures regard him from 2 Kings chapter 18. And what he, Hezekiah, did was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it and called it Nehushtan. They turned this relic of Moses's into an idol. This is what the, Rashka, the Rashkatab, or however you say that, this is what the Sennacherib's representative brings up and says, although he spins it as a negative, he took down all your altars. Well, it was a good thing. And he said, worship at the one true altar in Jerusalem. And it goes on to say this, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor none among them, uh, the, sorry, nor among those who were before him. He was a great king. I mean, pr presumably not greater than David, but maybe second? For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord command, commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. Of course, Philistine is where we get the word Palestinian now. And the war still goes on in Gaza. Dear Lord, please help those in Gaza where we pray for peace in Israel. At any rate... Hezekiah's prayer here is dramatically contrasted with his prayer in chapter 37. What an awesome prayer that was that Wayne covered last week. A thoroughly God-saturated prayer. He begins extolling the glory and holiness of God. You who sit enthroned among the cherubim, the sovereign over heaven and earth, the creator. He's He's so enthralled with God that it, it makes his problem seem so small in comparison, which is Sennacherib, a pretty big problem. But here he's overwhelmed by the pain he's in. And the only prayer he can put out is this one in verse 3. It's, it's weak, but it's what he's got. When Hezekiah prays, remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and a whole heart and I've done what's good in your sight, he's not wrong but neither is it terribly compelling either. We know that Hezekiah is a flawed man. He knows he's a flawed man. We know from what Sennacherib tells them in chapter 36 that they had entered into an alliance with Egypt, an anti-Assyrian alliance, despite what God had said. And whether Hezekiah initiated that alliance or not, he seemed to be doing little to counteract it. But I love what one commentator writes about Hezekiah's prayer here. He writes, it's an indication of our limited self-awareness that Hezekiah should plead on the basis of his integrity of heart. 
an indication, too, of the kind mercy of the Lord, that He hears our prayers even when they rest on false assumptions. How many times have you and I prayed with tears in our eyes to God to vindicate us because we're right, and maybe we're not right? Isn't it the kindness of God that He hears our prayers anyways? The reality is, yes, Hezekiah's faith is very fallible, and we're going to see it fails critically at the, at the worst juncture. But it's real, and it's a real virtue. It's commendable, but it's also very frail, and it is not trustworthy. Both of those things are true. His faith is real, and it is so terribly frail. But as we move into his prayer of thanksgiving in verses 10 through 20, we see a shift in emphasis, as I stated earlier, from his faithfulness to God's faithfulness. First, God's incredibly gracious response. It's not the best prayer ever prayed. It's not the most compelling. It, it does lack self-awareness. But look what he says in verse 5 and 6. God, go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. He hears even our weak prayers, our imperfect prayers, our inaccurate prayers. And I love this. He sees your tears. He heard his prayers and he saw his tears. They mattered to God. They mattered to Him. And God's gracious response is to save the king, to give him 15 more years, and then He'll throw in on top of that, I'm going to save the city of Jerusalem, at least for a while. It's an incredible reversal that happens in Hezekiah's life. He goes from sitting dejected at the gates of Sheol to singing in the house of the Lord. What a dramatic swing. This is to go from death, the death sentence he received, to life. Life is the clear theme of his prayer of thanksgiving. Life appears 11 times in chapter 38, either as a noun or a verb, to live or life eight of which are in his prayer of thanksgiving. Clearly, as a man facing death, life is on his mind. Life, Lord, life, life, give me life. Right? Right? Look at verse, uh, verse 19. He repeats himself, the living, the living, <laughs> he gives you thanks, as do I this day. And the basis of his confidence the fathers make known to the children your faithfulness. Verse 18, Sheol doesn't thank you. Death doesn't praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The faithfulness of God to this frail, failing, fallible, yet at times very faithful king. God is faithful. And specifically, the most remarkable verse to me is verse 17. 
he does recognize his own sin. He's not unaware of his guilt. Because look what he says in 17. Behold, it was for my good, my shalom, that I had great bitterness. What an odd way to bring shalom. But this is the way of the Lord with sinners like us. Through bitterness of soul, he brings us into wholeness of soul. In love you delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. It's not a great image. God just takes your sins like, throws it away. And that's the picture of forgiveness that's given to us. He's aware of his sin. He knows he deserves death. But God has graciously, freely forgiven him. Our faith is fallible, but God's faithfulness is infallible. I love what John Newton said. John Newton wrote, My soul is very sick, and if I just focused on that, it would lead me to despair. It's true. My soul is very sick, but my physician is infallible. Amen? My soul is very sick, but my physician is infallible. Our faith is not in our faith. We do not trust in our trust. The reason our faltering faith is of any good at all is because of the all-glorious one to whom our faith looks. We dare not trust in our trusting. We trust in Christ, who saves the weak and the failing. I remember, I can't remember which pastor it was, but someone came to him and said, Pastor, my faith is so weak. And the pastor replied, that's okay, your Savior is so strong. Well, Hezekiah, in the weakening of his faith, asks for a sign. I'm going to read from 2 Kings. 2 Kings is almost identical to Isaiah 38-39, but there's some other details here that I just want to point out. So uh, 2 Kings chapter 20 on the screen Isaiah said, after he gives this good news that he's going to be healed, bring a cake of figs and let them take it and lay it on the boil. Or we don't know what it is. Boil's our best guess. That he may recover. Now, what is, what, what? He's going to put a cake on him? Uh, this is a, a poultice, if you're familiar with this. It's like a poultice is a uh, compress of moist organic material to relieve inflammation. Yeah, it sounds gross, right? Moist just sounds gross. But... <laughs> A poultice is this compress of organic material you put on to, to kind of draw out inflammation and soreness. It's very ancient. People still use them today. Um, and anyway, so, so this is the solution to his fatal diagnosis. And so Hezekiah, perhaps unimpressed with the cure, says, uh, can I have a sign? <laughs> right? <laughs> Verse 8. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up from the house of the Lord on the third day? That's a detail that's not in Isaiah, that it was the third day. And Isaiah said, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he has promised. Shall the, shall the shadow go forward ten steps or go back ten steps? And Hezekiah said, well, it's an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. But let the shadow go back ten steps. Turn back time, as it were. And Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord, and he brought the shadow back ten steps by which it had gone down the steps of Ahaz. We don't know what exactly this is going on here. The Hebrew is weird. 
We know that there were steps involved and a shadow and that somehow the steps told time. So maybe the steps were designed uh, by Ahaz to, to tell time by the position of the sun through their shadow. But we, other than that, we're not clear on what's happening except something insane's happening, and that is it seems like the sun's going backwards in the sky. Now, that's quite a sign. And the fact that he mentions Ahaz draws our attention back in Isaiah's book to the sign Ahaz was offered. Do you remember that? In Isaiah chapter 7, Ahaz, the king of Judah, is is terrified of this Syro-Ephraimite coalition that Syria and northern Israel, north of them, had formed a pact, an alliance, and were going to pressure Judah into that anti-Assyrian alliance with them or face the consequences. And Ahaz didn't want to do that. Ahaz had already made up his mind to seek refuge in the Assyrians. And so before he pulls the trigger on that, Isaiah comes to him and says, you don't need to fear Syria or Israel. They're, gonna, they're not even going to exist within like the next 12 years. They're going to be gone. And Ahaz has already made up his mind. So this is what happens. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Move heaven and earth, whatever the sign is. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord our God to a test. Right? You can see Isaiah rolling his eyes like, come on, man. In fact, Isaiah says, hear then, O house of David. Is it too small of a thing that you weary men like me? That you have to weary God as well? He didn't, he didn't want to believe. He'd already made up his mind. But Hezekiah asks for a sign, and it is quite the sign. Whether the earth turns backwards, you know, or just the light was refracted, we don't know, but it was clearly a big deal, right? This, is a, this sign is way more impressive than a poultice, <laughs> and it confirmed his faith. But God makes it clear that he does this not for, so much for his sake, that is the healing, as for the sake of David. You notice what he said in verse 5 of 38, that he addresses him as the son of David, David, your father, the God of David, your father. And in the second Kings version, this is what it says. Thus says the Lord, the God of your father, David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you will go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. In other words, God's faithfulness to Hezekiah isn't just about Hezekiah, it's about David. It's about the covenant he made with David, the promise he made to David. And my friends, the same is true for us. God has made a pledge and a promise to us for the sake of David. God still saves us for that sake because of the covenant made with David because that co covenant culminates in David's great son, Jesus of Nazareth. Hezekiah's great son. It is for Christ's sake that God is faithful to you. And that's good news because God is faithful to his son. Because he is faithful to his son and for that very, with that very same faithfulness, he is faithful to us. 
So we don't go, well, God, you're faithful to me because I've been so good. I've been so faithful to you. It's for the sake of Christ that God is faithful to you and will remain faithful to you to the very end. And he has given a sign to us. He gave Hezekiah a pretty impressive one, but you and I have another, an even better one. Hezekiah seems to moon heaven and earth. Ours goes to the depths of Sheol and raises to the heights of heaven. The sign God gave us in Christ is that three days later, a crucified Jesus rose from the dead. This is the great sign he's given to the world, the pledge of our faith, the pledge of God's faithfulness to us. He did not leave his boy in the grave. Hezekiah sat at the gates of Sheol. Jesus was swallowed by the gates, but the bars couldn't hold him, and he burst them open. The Father raised his son from the dead as a pledge to you and me that he will raise us with him. You can count on it. You can bet on it. Right? This is our great pledge that should feed our faith. Finally, our prince. Our prince. I'm going to read 39, and this is where Hezekiah goes from maybe a faltering faith to a, a failing faith. He's, this is a, kind of a down moment in which to end this section of Isaiah. But 39 verses 1 to the end, verse 8. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses I didn't show them. Then Hezekiah, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. First, Hezekiah's failure of faith here. A prince from Babylon came, a very famous prince. We read about Merodach Baladan in not only scripture, but in the Assyrian records. He was quite the thorn in the side of the Assyrian Empire. It was a big deal that he was coming. Hezekiah was thoroughly impressed, and he wanted to be impressive. They came ostensibly to give him a gift. We heard about the great thing that happened for you, that you were healed of this fatal disease. But of course, the real reason was to build an alliance, an anti-Assyrian alliance between Judah and Babylon. And Hezekiah 
fell hook, line, and sinker for it. He had just been healed by the Almighty God. And here he finds himself overly impressed with Babylon. Isn't that just like our faith? <laughs> he did have lots of riches. This is what we read in 2 Chronicles. Hezekiah had very great riches and honor. He made for himself treasuries of silver and gold, precious stones, spices, shields, all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses for yields of grain, wine, oil, stalls for all kinds of cattle, sheepfolds. He provided cities for him. He had whole cities full of stuff for himself. Flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great possessions. But as impressive as Hezekiah's possessions were, you know for the king and the princes of Babylon, as they were ooing and aahing for him, they were like, we've seen better. You know, they're not that impressed. Why was this happening? The Chronicle tells us that this wasn't an accident, that God was testing Hezekiah's faith. Listen to what the Chronicler says. About the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left Hezekiah to himself. Those are terrifying words. God left Hezekiah to himself in order to test him and know all that was in his heart. And we see what was in his heart. Was he wholehearted in his devotion to God? Yes, and no. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And so Isaiah gives him a second woe. Hezekiah, you were impressed with your possessions, and you tried to be impressive and showed your possessions off to these great men. And so appropriately so, with great poetic justice, all those possessions will go to Babylon. And even your sons that you haven't even fathered yet, they will be eunuchs in the king's court. This is devastating news. But how does Hezekiah respond? Cool. Right? Oh, good. The, Lord, the word of the Lord is good. And at first that might sound pious, like he's Job, like the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But that is not what's happening here. What does he say? Four, at least in my days, things will be fine. He was very concerned with his life, but apparently only his life. When he was, his life was on the line, he wept bitterly. He, he, he turned to the wall. He pleaded with God. But here there's no pleading. Just, okay. And here we see great irony. You know, he said earlier, father tells his children the faithfulness of God. He doesn't seem that concerned with the next generation here. Hezekiah fails as a good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and he's happy to keep his life and let the sheep be slaughtered. In all of Isaiah's text to this point, we've been building up to a promised son of David, a faithful one, a shoot of Jesse who will finally stand for righteousness. This one who, upon whose shoulders the government will sit, who will bring righteousness and shalom. Is it Hezekiah, the most impressive king to date? 
Is Hezekiah Emmanuel? No. Tragically, sadly, no. But our prince has come, my friends, and he laid down his life for the sheep. He entered the gates of Sheol so that Sheol would not prevail against us. Jesus saves the future people of God, the future people of, that Hezekiah had consigned to damnation by giving up his own life. And in the prime of his, 33 years old, my friends, this is how much you're loved. The good shepherd, not begrudgingly, but willingly. No one took it from him. He gave it up for us. So that in all of our failings, and all of our faltering, we will know nothing but the faithfulness of our God. Amen? Amen. Let's continue to sing of that faithfulness. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus. We thank you for the good Son of David. We thank you for your faithfulness to us through your faithfulness to him. Lord, as our faith falters and weakens and swings from firm to feeble, I pray, Lord, you would set our eyes on Jesus and feed our faith on his beauty.